This is a production of Cornell University. So everyone, welcome. Welcome to episode seven of the Cornell Turf Show, the fastest uh, 28 and a half minutes in turf, I think we're going to call it now. Uh, our guest today is Dr. Mike Fidanza of Penn State Berks. Mike is going to be on his book tour today. We're going to talk about Mike's new book, uh, Sustainable Turf Grass Management. We'll, we're going to get to that. Today. There he goes. He's got it ready, <laughs> locked and loaded. So he, he's done this tour a couple times. Uh, Frank, Frank, I'll bring you in to, to get us started here uh, to get your thoughts on, on some of the things we're seeing uh, out and about these days. Well, first off, big thanks to my pal, Mike. Mike, appreciate that you taking the time. And we're going to do the best we can to make this a, a really productive book tour. I think Carl's even got QR codes ready for us uh, to, to get this thing ordered. So really happy to have everybody here and thought I'd start off with, you know, I'm always looking for a good dog picture. I got another one later on, but nothing better than a dog on a hot day sitting in a drainage ditch that's working well. Uh, there are very few things more satisfying when a golf course superintendent can put in some drainage and actually see it working right out of the gate, right out of the gate. So, um, Carl, before I pass it to you, uh, our New York, one of our great New York State golf course superintendents, a uh, personality and character, uh, unlike many that I meet, uh, Thad Thompson. In fact, we're going to be out walking and talking at his brother's place in East Aurora, uh, Drew's place uh, for a walk and talk later in the year, but Thad never misses a moment for irony, right? He pumps irony. He's so good at it. Um, th this is, uh, you got to love this sign, driving right around it. And, and Thad's comment was, well, at least they didn't drive over it, Carl. So with that, I know you've got a special topic in plan planned for us today in honor of our guests. So let's uh, get it because it really ties in well with what we're focused on here uh, at Cornell and the BMP stuff. Yeah, I, I mean, you're, you're exactly right, Frank. Sustainability, that's sort of a big umbrella term that a lot of people and a lot of different walks of life use these days. Uh, you'll see this in our resources. Last week, we unveiled our sustainability handbook. You know, we're talking about each BMP and, and you, get, you guys have the QR codes here for those watching. You can get each of these resources. We've got our sustainability handbook, really about awareness of best management practices. Uh, and then really happy to, to have Mike on today to talk about his uh, new textbook that he's the chief editor on, Achieving Sustainable Turfgrass Management, right? And there's 20 chapters in here. There's stuff on drones, there's stuff on pollinators, uh, non-chemical control of diseases. So there's a lot of cool stuff in there. There's six left on Amazon. I counted this morning, Frank, before I put this <laughs> QR code up here. We're going to see how many are left after today. Right. But, uh, we'll print some more, don't worry. <laughs> That's right. He can always print more. Uh, but I really wanted to talk really in the, in the up front here, Frank, about what is sustainability, right? It's that big term. What is it? I think about it in terms of golf courses. Uh, what's the least we can do to achieve our goal? And I'm highlighting here for those looking uh, the term least and the term goal, right? Sustainability doesn't start with all the stuff, the fertilizer, the water, the pesticides. It starts with our goal, right? We need to define a goal. And we have some tools to do that nowadays. Uh, the USGA just released uh, this GS3 ball, right? We've talked about, about this on the show a little bit. That's going to help us quantify uh, putting green quality, smoothness, firmness, uh, green speeds, right? It's going to give a number to that. A lot of times I think what I see people, the goal as a superintendent is, you know, elite uh, conditioning or championship quality. Well, that, what does that mean, right? What, what is that uh, in terms of a number? A uh, fairway ball eye, like what does that mean? Uh, you got to define your goal, right? So I think that's the place to start if, you're, if your goal is a conditioning from a superintendent, from a facility perspective, maybe the goal is to do rounds or revenue. 
Uh, we do this with our state park courses. We look at uh, how well they utilize available rounds. So we look at the data that adjusts your rounds capacity in a given year based on the weather, right? If you have good or bad weather that year, you could do a maximum number of rounds. We look at the rounds they did. We call that percentage utilization. And maybe our goal is to utilize the course better. Maybe our goal is 55% filling available tea times, right? So that's where it starts. Sustainability starts with a goal. And then it's, hey, what am I putting into that system to achieve that goal? Frank, you looked at this in, in the 2000s at Beth Page Green. You guys asked the question, do we need pesticides on golf courses? Uh, the answer was yes. You can't remove pesticides and have a putting green. You figured that out pretty quickly. Uh, but one of the other things you figured out is, hey, we can use less. We could do these reduced risk programs. Again, there's a QR code if you want to look at this document from the Beth Page Green course. Uh, and we've transitioned that thinking into all other state park golf courses. So this is data we look at with our state park courses, about 15 courses. Uh, we track their pesticide risk, EIQ. You can measure that through. You can also measure it through the hazard quotient. Uh, now we've got data that actually compares uh, our state park courses to the national average. Um, so we know the national average in this metric is around 260. Right there's the red line for those who can see. And state park courses are well below that. That's good. But hey, can we go lower? Can we still achieve our goals with less pesticide use? Or in some cases, hey, maybe we actually need to apply more of the system to get enough golfers to get that utilization rate. Um, we can also look at fertilizer use, right? So we have numbers from the DCSAA here in the Northeast. We've got those numbers on the left, our state park courses on the right. Uh, we use a lot less fertilizer, that's good. Um, but hey, at each facility, do we need to use more? Do we need to use less? Um, in some cases, hey, maybe a little bit more nitrogen on fairways can help that turf quality improve and you get more rounds out of it, right? There's a marginal return maybe in, in nitrogen. So our idea is what's the, what's the least we can do and get that goal out of it? Uh, and then one last one, Frank, is uh, do we need to maintain the property uh, in a homogeneous way or not? Uh, Mike wrote a great article in GCM the other day about irrigation and the Malaysia, the Malaysia 2005 paper, which is taken out of context a lot. But one of the things you said in there, Mike, is, is about a third of the total land on golf courses is, is not managed turf. And what we're asking is, can it be more? Do golfers really use all of that 180 acres uh, on a landscape? And again, we work with our state park courses to implement these nomo areas or, or native areas, long grass, whatever you want to call them. Uh, hey, there's this peripheries of the golf course where maybe we don't need to mow that as rough twice a week. Um, so we've looked at across those 15 golf courses, about 300 acres they've transitioned uh, to this low mow uh, native area. When we make some estimates on how much they've reduced in mowing, uh, you know, this is sort of where sustainability comes together. Okay, 36 metric tons of CO2 are diverted every year, uh, our estimates, um, because they've, they've transitioned to low mow. That's the same amount as uh, 43 acres of, of uh, forest how much they sequester carbon a year or the equivalent of driving almost 91,000 miles in a gas powered vehicle. Um, and then at Cornell, you know, we, we use some data to figure out, hey, where are, where are golfers actually going, right? We've got data from uh, the USGA Deacon GPS system. We strapped GPS, uh, people put them in their pockets, the golfers. We tracked them around the property. We said, hey, there's a lot of areas that these golfers aren't going. We don't need to manage that area uh, and transition those to long grass. So uh, to put a ball on it, Frank, sustainability for me, I, it's got to start with those measurable things, those goals. And then it's about what's the least we can do. And in some cases, you might actually need to do more to get to your goal. Um, so it's not exactly. just about blanketly eliminating the use of fertilizers or irrigation or pesticides. It's about being a little bit more strategic and figuring out where that line is, right? Where's the, 
the line of least uh, resources that, that gets me to where I want to go. This is great, Carl. I couldn't I couldn't uh, support the whole idea of setting a goal uh, and and being trying to be specific and and make it measurable. And Mike, we spent a lot of time smart goals, all kinds of goals. We love goals uh, in yes. academics like crazy. And I do think some of it is because it, it's hard to measure some of these things. Uh, I I do think it is important to set goals of things you can measure. And Carl. Uh, this point is well taken. Are you measuring your fuel use? How is your fuel used? How much is used to mow fairways? How much is used to mow rough? Uh, how much can we save if we go to electric? What are these things? And I just think bringing some, some measurability, some, some standardization to the way we look at these things is quite a bit new. Uh, to many parts of our industry, not all parts. I mean, you look at Troon and a lot of these high-end operations, they know, they mind their P's and Q's about these things. And what you find is that environmental sustainability tends to line up oftentimes with economics sustainability. And it's, you might save money in being more uh, sustainable from a product and practice perspective, but you might reallocate that money uh, into different things. Now, speaking of reallocation, and before we bring on my good friend, <laughs> oh, Dr. Fidanza, we want to know when that chair's not in use, Mike, it's under, it's, it's, in, it's being well supervised. Uh, I just Correct. love how they share that space. Now, right, now listen, right. it, it was a dry week uh, across the region. It was a dry week. Most areas, less than a quarter of an inch across the week, just as uh, we predicted uh, just as we predicted last week, we got the dry weather. And, and in some places, it's even starting to trigger some drought, particularly to the southwest uh, part of the region. Now, soils, as they dry, are going to warm. And so we're seeing really good mid-50s in the New York metropolitan area, still in the 40s upstate. But when you look around the Rochester area, Albany, you start to see some heat island effects occurring uh, in the Rochester area, a lot of heat building up in Rochester soils, which I know my old pal Jeff Corcoran is very happy to see as the PGA Championship will be there probably in less than a month uh, as we speak right here. Now, Carl, really fascinating stuff. I went to, we're going to chat with Mike a little bit about uh, fairy ring stuff as we get going. I pulled this off the uh, Greencast website. They've been monitoring soil temperature here in upstate New York at some of the sites where they do their annual bluegrass weevil monitoring. And, and then typically they say fairy, fairy ring germination at 60 degrees or greater, you know, five day average. You, you, it's not uncommon uh, to see this sort of stuff. Um, I want to also talk about proxy applications. So the soils are coming. The proxy applications are still pretty good for seed head suppression in the central part of the Northeast region. Peak seed head flush looks like it's maybe a week away from the metropolitan New York area. It's just starting to come in uh, down where Mike is, maybe a little bit closer, but still you're going to find out how good your seed head stuff worked in the next couple of weeks, right? And so be mindful of that as you move forward. Dollar spot risk estimates on the Cornell forecast model is demonstrating an uptick as some rainfall potentially moves in uh, in the Sunday, Monday period. What's very interesting about our new forecast website, we don't use the Smith-Kearns model, but we have a daily average 
and you can see a seven-day average there. So you can see over a seven-day period, we're still not really getting where we're worried, but in the longer day period, uh, I'm sorry, seven-day average, we're, but daily, you might see an uptick, but you're not seeing a trend yet. So I wouldn't be in a rush. I'm not a big believer in these early dollar spot uh, applications. Again, for for um, specifically for uh, uh, early season dollar spot control on fairways. That's a lot of product for something that, that probably isn't there yet. Now the Smith Kearns model on the Greencast website is also showing an uptick, but not as much of an uptick, right? It's picking it up, but it's not amplified uh, as much as our thing. And I bring this up to really, you know, help people understand. Don't just look at the model and say, okay, it says to go, I gotta go. You should be looking at a few things. You should be using your intuition. This is the concept of, of finding actionable data, but then deciding ultimately how to act. This should be enhancing what you're doing, you know, not giving you panic. So speaking of panic, uh, 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 Ben McGraw has been posting recently in the Greencast area, and he's starting to see after a mild year last year, down in the Columbus Central PA area, a big uptick in the annual bluegrass weevil populations. And, and he's also saying, don't panic. You know, we're going to see this thing. If you're on an adulticide program, which honestly fewer and fewer people are on all the time now, more are moving to a larval program, we're starting to hear. But if you're still on an adult population, you want to wait until there's as many out there as possible to get the biggest bang from your buck from a single application. One of the big things Ben's talking about here, it doesn't appear that Forsythia synced up with weevils this year. There's definitely something different with this phenological indicator that I think is really important to understand. Because again, if you trigger, even with a phenological indicator like Forsythia, you make your app, you still may have 50 to 60% of the adults going to be running around and you're going to miss them. So that's why paying attention to these things is really important. Looks like we're going to stay warm and, and a little bit dry with some rainfall maybe coming through in the next few days. But overall, even when it's going to be cloudy and rainy in the next week to 10 days, uh, don't expect a lot of rainfall. So we're going to really find out what dry weather is going to feel like soon. And I anticipate that's going to amplify the annual bluegrass seed head flush. They tend to be much worse when we get dry conditions. All right, Mike. I know this always isn't your favorite topic, and now you're this great scholar, and I'll hold mine up for those of us, for those of you watching on News Channel 10. I got my, I got my book here as well. Uh, early adopter. I'm glad there's only a few left. We needed a new book. You've, been an, you've done a lot of work with fairy rings. This is a data-driven application. Right. There are a ton of products that you can use. You know, we promote the Wisconsin website. We were promote the Kentucky uh, update that's happened. But right, Mike, we're actually hearing quite a bit about fairy ring getting going this spring. There's yeah. different types and we're going to play around a little bit with this. We can cut right to the chase on some of it. But fundamentally, one of the things I want to talk to you about is if you've got a problem with this, if this organism. And it's so severe that it's they're becoming hydrophobic and you're losing turf and the turf is getting pitted. You know, you've got to get that product down to where the organism is if it has any chance 
uh, of providing a benefit because this thing, this is a picture from one of your presentations, Mike. Right, that, that, that came from thing, Dr. Henry Wetzel. Buddy. Yeah, there you go. Look at this thing. And see, right. when I see it like this, I begin to understand maybe a little bit more about the hydrophobicity. So let's take a little bit, Mike, talk a little bit about fairy right. ring in general and getting the products down there to be effective. Right. Well, you know, uh, I've gotten a lot of calls this spring about fairy ring. Folks have said they're, they're seeing more evidence of fairy ring earlier in the season. And here in the Philadelphia area, mid-Atlantic, perhaps northeast, we, we've had our, I guess, our mild winter. We didn't have prolonged snow cover. And sure, soil temperatures are warming up and fairing the basidiomycete fungi are just more active and we're seeing it earlier. And this is a great photo showing the fungus, you know, it was incubated for a couple of days in a wet paper towel in a plastic bag and the fungus fluffs out, you know, it's plant pathology. Mm -hmm. And it shows you where the, where the basidiomycete fungus is living right there in the thatch. It's a wood decaying fungus. It loves the, the lignin, it's eating on, it's munching all the way at the lignin. And so making a fungicide application, uh, you need to apply it and it's, you have to water it in. And folks say, well, how much water? Well, you need enough water to move that material as best you can, move the fungicide into that thatch and, and even beyond. Um, now our buddy, John Cesar, you remember Dr. John Cesar at University of Florida, he texted me this morning. Uh, he lives outside of Fort Lauderdale and they just had a record 25.9 inches of rain that fell, and uh, that would be overwatering, perhaps. But you do need <laughs> a lot of water. <laughs> you know what I mean, Frank? You do need yeah. a lot of water, and that's why I like to recommend the fungicides tank mix with the wetting agent to really facilitate the placement of those fungicide products. We have some excellent fungicides now labeled for fairy ring, but you have to get it uh, into that into that that uh, that zone, so to speak. And punching holes helps or, you know, um, I like I like needle tining, punching holes, solid time, punching holes, making that fungicide wetting application and watering it in. And don't be afraid to come back uh, the day after, water it in again, or a couple of days later, water it in again. Because like you mentioned, Frank, the hydrophobicity part really kicks in. That fungus is colonizing the thatch, the upper root zone. And what you're creating is a, is a hydrophobic situation. So it's, it's, you have to sort of re-wet this this thatchy, you know, matte material. It's a challenge. That's it's right. Agronomically. And so I think one of, you know, we, we have this annual conversation and I, right. and I, about these things and it, it is interesting. I think the mild winter then leads to maybe it coming on earlier as the whole system is warmer and doesn't need that much time to warm up. So it's obviously warming quicker uh, from a mild winter. Now that said, Mike, if you have this in particular areas, you can go out and do more targeted work on this, right? I mean, a yes. lot of times these fairy rings are very site specific um, and, and especially where they, you know, where you feel like you need to treat them. So actually targeting the aeration, going back and just hitting that area with extra water mm -hmm. is probably better than blanketing everything uh, that most of which don't even need it. And that will sort of help you save a little bit of resources you've had i'm assuming you've had some absolutely. success in just spot treating some of these things. Oh, oh, absolutely I, I agree with that this these furring fungi you know they're they're so they're so elusive but uh when you see them on golf courses you know they'll persist for several years so the superintendents and you know our course care managers our folks 
They know where the fairings are showing up. And so, you know, treat those areas. Now, they come and go too sometimes. There was a, a golf course in central Pennsylvania in the early 2000s. They had some fairing problems on their fairways. They, ha they had an aggressive thatch management program. That was a nice long-term approach. So fairings have been subsided. But over the last couple of years, it started showing up again back on fairways, but only certain fairways or certain spots on fairways. So to your point, and maybe this ties in with the sustainability theme, and, and Carl, I really like how you, how you put all that information together. I think you can spot, spot spray or target where you're going to make these, um, these applications, especially if you've got to utilize resources of, you know, uh, verification equipment, needle tining and things, and, and, and doing specific specific fungicide wetting agent tank mix applications. Um, and then you also real quick, you mentioned the, uh, the green cast, the, the soil temperature threshold. That, that was actually developed there in North, at North Carolina State, but it, um, it does hold true, I think, in many parts of the country, that when these soil temps warm up into the 5560, that just means that the Basidiomyces, the fairing fungi, they're starting to grow and thrive and do their thing. They're out there now coexisting with nature and, and colonizing the thatch. But then, you know, we get these sort of wet, dry environmental cycles. It rains, it dries, it rains, it dries out. Or with our irrigation programs, that fungus goes into its sort of reproductive cycle. That's when it becomes hydrophobic and starts rapidly colonizing the thatch and, and break down the organic material anyway. So that's why uh, uh, that's a, if you're going to start a, a preventative, let's say, a, fairing program, a good way to do that, start starting, you know, with those soil temperatures reach that 55 to 60 threshold just to try to so, stay. Yep. So, so, okay. So this is very interesting. You brought up a really interesting point about um, a cor that course in central PA. So they right. had an aggressive thatch management program, saw the fairy ring decline. Yes. As presumably they built up a nice um, sand layer, I would imagine. They did um, uh, on, top, uh, yes. on the top of that. Yeah. Yeah. And that worked for a little while. And now you're right. saying some fairways are getting it back. When you say elusive, this organism right. can be, yes. um, you, and that's code for, we don't really understand why these things come and go, or can we <laughs> right. say that bigger thatch areas have more fairy ring problems that thatch management will be uh, a good long-term solution to fairy ring problems. Oh, yeah. oh, I, I definitely, the, the most severe fairing sites I've seen with really thick thatch layers. Now, having said that, I've, I've seen other sites with minimal thatch layer and had some aggressive fairy ring, but the rule of thumb is right. The, the more thatch, the more organic matter, um, they're, they're more prone to, to fairing uh, symptoms occurring. Now, um, what I want to say about, oh, the elusiveness. There's over 60 species that can cause fairing symptoms. They're on the Basidiomyces family. They're like a big Italian familia, you know, Frank. And, <laughs> and uh, perhaps um, the, the species may have shifted on that site in central PA. There was one particular like the thatch. And then, okay, now that with the sand top dressing and, and mitigation that way, there could be other species that moved in there that acclimated that area so that, well, we need we, what you're telling me is we need dan Danelli on this job we need our band oh, dan oh, Danelli. Yes. our buddy dan Danelli. we talk about or, or, you know organic yeah. matter navigation and you know that's it's we yeah. really endlessly so, all right so listen fairing, I'm done with yeah. you. i i got oh, i no, got no, two no. i i got two more things to chat yes. about 
Yes, One yes. is this idea, again, something I know you've talked about in some of your wedding agent conversations. You brought it up with fairy rings. We're talking about hydrophobicity. And you guys, you and uh, our partner, Stan Koska, and of course, uh, you know, rest his soul, Stan Zontek got this going too. And a lot of Johnny was involved, Johnny Cesar involved. But you guys have been very active with Kale in, in understanding maybe broader effects of wedding agents potentially right. on uh, improving rooting. Now, I don't think, I, I would assume, you know, basidiomycin fungicides and rooting depth related to yeah. wedding agents, there's not a lot there, but hydrophobicity is hydrophobicity. Right. And if you're telling me now that using wet age, it not only might help me with, uh, you know, localized dry spot stuff, right? Hydrophobicity, but potentially now increase rooting depths in these environments. That is something I want to talk to you a little bit more, Mike, about. And because I know you are, you know, know a lot about this. And I, a lot of guys use wetting agent, but I don't think a lot of people realize you could get a potential rooting benefit from this by using it with your fairy ring and then continuing a program later on. Let's talk about right. wedding yeah, agents the, and rooting. No, I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad you brought this up because this, this ties in with the book specifically on chapter 15, which I think is the best chapter in the book. It's on biostimulants and your own Dr. Frank Rossi was a co-author <laughs> of that book. So the reason I mentioned that in, in that particular chapter, we talk about soil surfactants and, and we were attempting to sort of categorize the biostimulants in the turf industry and and define them and what, what they're composed of and what they do. But the soil surfactant part is very intriguing. There's research the last uh, recent years that looked at the, the interaction of soil surfactant applications in that rhizosphere, that specific environment around the root zone. And yes, while the surfactant uh, technology or the molecule is helping with the rewetting and overcoming hydrophobicity and allowing the root zone to be more uh, wetted more uniformly and effectively, there's also a physical, chemical, biological interaction with the microorganisms around the roots, how the root hairs maintain their turgidity and connectivity in that soil. And there's something, uh, there's been a couple of wetting agents that have been tested that show dramatically improved rooting when you use them. Even under well-watered conditions, uh, there is even more rooting with, with the applications of wetting agents. So there's something going on there more than just wetting, more than just your traditional wetting agent. And we're diving into this a little more with different types of research work with our Dr. Zhang there at Virginia Tech in some controlled, you know, um, growth chamber studies. There's work out of Australia, a researcher there that showed, again, a tremendous, tremendous amount of uh, rooting, increased rooting or enhanced rooting, and, and the development of um, improvement of rhizosheets, that material around the roots that help the roots uh, acquire more water nutrients. So there's a lot of it's called biostimulant type effects of these, some of these wetting agents. I think it's worth exploring a lot more. Yeah, I think it's tied to irrigation water management and and let's let's say yes, sustain a sustainable approach to managing water. But there's also something else going on there. I'm not saying every agent molecule will do this. We need a lot more testing, but some of the ones that we've looked at show this increased rooting and it really got our attention. And especially you know, in the Mid-Atlantic region here. Um, where we need those roots to kind of hang in there during the summer months to get, sure. get that uh, <laughs> that challenging season. All right, listen, we're going to yeah. wrap up here in the next oh, couple yes. of minutes. But I want to say I want to okay. say this. Like I said, I got my copy. Carl, I hope is going to get his copy soon. We we've, we've definitely been talking about this. This is a 
I know you well enough that you'll deflect a lot of the attention to the authors, right? Because you obviously were heavily involved as the editor. It's your idea and your baby for sure. But it was so great to see you, number one, uh, approach the topic this way, Mike, uh, achieving sustainable turf management. This is a publishing house out of the UK that does this uh, with a number of industries. So I big yeah. kudos to you guys uh, for pulling this off. And Carl and I have been recently looking at, you know, other work, like not mowing as much work you've been involved in. Um, and the chapter in here that Michelle and Mike and Paige have worked on in the pollinator area right. has been right. something we're really referring to. Um, I'll just ask you a simple question. What was the most rewarding part about doing this book? I appreciate you saying that. I think it was just working with uh, with all the, the authors on all the different chapters. Uh, everyone was so gracious with their time. My goal was to to uh, learn as much as I can, you know, from everyone um, and, and just the interaction. Uh, I had to twist some arms to get the chapters to me on time. And I had to twist some arms to get the edits and corrections back. But it, it was a kind of rewarding experience. And, I, and I'll tell you real quick, I, um, I uh, we, we have such a... Just a wonderful folks in this industry, as you know, and and, uh, and what I wanted to tie in some university folks, some industry folks, wanted everybody's uh, seated at the table here and, and contribute. And I was channeling my, uh, got to think about my old professor at, at, at Penn State. I did a master's degree under Dr. Don Waddington, and he was the editor of that Agronomy monograph. And I remember as a grad student, he was editing that thing and he had piles on his desk, you know, different chapters. And I had the same method. <laughs> I used it. I had different piles of different chapters, and I would edit different ones. So it was it was kind of cool, like just to kind of think back about Dr. Waddington and and how he did things. And then I had good training with Dr. Peter Node in Maryland on the editing. And so yeah, the the rewarding part was just working with all the authors and co-authors. And yeah, and, and it's so great, Mike. We we needed right. a we needed a current summary of right. the state of the thinking. And you got this turned around pretty quick. So right now, this book is really current, right? Thank you, we all hope in three years, it's not going to be because we'll have a lot of new work in three right. years. And I think that's that's the beauty of these things. So, Carl, we're getting close. Are there any final questions or comments you want to make? And thank Mike before we get out of oh, here. You. I appreciate that, you guys. Thank you. Yeah, thanks a ton for my. I just want to comment on, on Mike. You talked about site specific management. We talk about it with fairy rings. Right. Frank, in the research we've done on pesticide use in, in the United States, that's what drives our resource use, whether it's pesticides, irrigation, or fertilizer. Fairway areas where we're, where we're maintaining not quite as intensely as greens, but still pretty intensely, they're 20 or 30 acres. They, they chew up a lot of resources. So, thinking where we can manage those areas more site specifically. Uh, is a great comment from Mike, and I think that's that's the lowest hanging fruit, in my opinion. You could choose, you could keep the same products, same program, if you just thought a little bit more about, hey, that that dollar spot application. Do I need it on all thirty acres? Maybe, hey, maybe twenty acres. I'll leave these ten over here. Um, that's that's the key to me to start start with uh, with reducing resource use and being able to reallocate that stuff for other uses, right? Whether it's the labor or the cost, reallocating that other other places in the operation. Perfect. Thanks for joining us, Mike. Great to see you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank. Great to see you guys. Thank you. Thank Thanks you, time, Mike. Thanks, and to, uh, 
tomorrow we're going to be back with uh, Sean Keister, who collaborated with Mike on some of the low mowing research. We're going to talk with Sean tomorrow from Longwood Gardens about his sustainability initiative. So it's Sustainability Week with here, uh, here on the yeah, Cornell Turf Show. With the Pennsylvania guy. folks. Right. With the Pennsylvania. Last week it was Purdue and weed scientists. This right. week, Penn State. Pennsylvania. Sean's a good guy. See you. Thank you very much. Take Thank care, you. Everybody. This has been a production of Cornell University on the web at cornell.edu.